0: Listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Once again, I'm speaking because Pastor Robbie is gone. I do at this point have a complex about it that he. I'm, I'm torn, right? It means he trusts me that he would ask me to speak when he's not here, but it means that he doesn't want to hear me because he only asks when I'm, when he's not going to be here. So maybe it means that he he thinks you can handle it. He trusts you. I, I think that's probably what it means. And he'll be gone next week too. So, Mikhail, he he's starting to do the same to you. Um, you can misery loves company, right? So one of the things that I love about Oasis is the ways in which we assume, the church just assumes that our stories are different, and you don't have a lot of pressure to, to come off as particularly on top of it all the time. I think this is, this is something that runs through the, the whole culture of the community. I mean, we've been here over a year now attending, but even before I attended, I, I knew this about the people who attended here, I think it, it's fair to say that that's part of what is known about the church, that there's a, a, a culture in which there's room to be yourself and room to have your own story and your own account of how your relationship to God is working at any particular moment. And I do, I do think that's actually pretty remarkable. Um, the churches that I grew up in, there was a lot of pressure to always come off as Christian so we had church all the time so we had church Sunday morning and Sunday night Wednesday night and Saturday night and then once a month we had church on Friday night and then every spring every summer and every fall we had a revival that had to go at least two weeks consecutively it didn't count as revival unless it was two full weeks so you had to have 14 (laughs) days of service so we we went to church a lot and there was always pressure, not only to be at church, we actually gave out attendance buttons. Have you ever been a part of a church that did that? <laughs> attendance, like a perfect attendance for the year. I, I got that every year, because my parents didn't miss. I mean, the, it didn't matter. No matter what happened, my parents didn't miss church, and so we didn't miss church. So I, I have those somewhere, I'm sure. My mom has collected my perfect attendance church buttons, like moms do. And we had a church all the time, but you were also expected not just to be there, but to be on top of everything, right? To uh, one of the things that we did at two of those services, so on, on Wednesday nights and Saturday nights, we had testimony service. Have any of you ever been a part of a church that had testimony service before? Incredibly bad idea, right? Like, a really bad idea. Because every once in a while, you'll have that person that tells a story that's, that's really important for the community to hear, but most of the time, it's, it's really embarrassing, right, for the people talking as well as everybody else. But at this church, like, you had, everybody had to testify. It was a small church, probably 50 people. And if you didn't testify, people just assumed it was because you had backslidden, right? Like, if you didn't stand up and (laughs) say that you love Jesus, then, well, clearly, this person is is no longer in love with God, right? So I say all that to say, I've been around church cultures where there was a lot of pressure to perform and to at least to put on the best face. And I'm, I'm really grateful that Oasis is not that kind of community. And what I want to talk about this morning is the ways in which at the end of the Gospel of John, the last two characters that John gives us as eyewitnesses of Jesus are both characters who are not putting on their best face. They're not trying to be what people imagine Christians ought to be. And I think it's, it's really remarkable that... The Gospel of John wants to draw our attention to these characters in the wake of Jesus' death. So let's let's look together John 20 and consider the story of Mary and Thomas. Mary Magdalene and Thomas. And I think we can kind of let their example make room for us, even though Oasis is already a community where there's room for you to be who you are and room for you to experience what you're experiencing. I think there is a way in which this story can create even more room for us. It's the first day of the week, John tells us, but it's still dark. And in details like this, all the way through the chapter, John is showing us how it can be day, but still dark, so he does this with Mary in the morning. It's, it's the, the, the sun has started to rise. It's the first day of the week, and yet it's still dark, and she comes to the tomb, and at the end of the story with Thomas, it's in the evening. The sun has not fully set. It's still the day, but it's, it's grown dark. And so Thomas sits both of these stories in the dark, and I think he sits them in the dark on purpose to show us that you can, you can be people of the day. You can be people who are living with Christ, who love God, have the Spirit of God at work in you, and still what you experience is darkness. And so Mary is coming to the garden in the dark. She comes and sees that the stone has been removed, and she runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. This is, this is a kind of remarkable event. Because Mary Magdalene does not play a major role in this gospel. In fact, we don't know anything about her backstory. If if all we have is the gospel of John, we don't know who she is or why she cares. She just suddenly appears at at the cross, at the foot of the cross with Jesus as he's dying. And then she comes alone to the garden the morning of the resurrection. And when she sees that the stone has been removed, she just immediately assumes that they've stolen the body. Right? They've taken the body somewhere and they don't, And she doesn't know where. And she runs to Peter and the beloved disciple to have them come and see. And it's something of a comic image because the two of them come running together but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Right? So the, the younger disciple outruns the older one and, and they come to the tomb and he bent down to look in, the younger one did, and saw the linen wrappings lying there but he did not go in. So the image is he runs, he outruns Peter, he comes to the tomb, he looks in, he sees the linen cloths, but he doesn't enter the tomb. Peter comes afterward, huffing and puffing, right, and follows him, but goes past him into the tomb. So this, this seems very much like Peter, which he's, you know, he's coming up behind, he's a little slow, he's older, and, and yet he rushes right past John into the tomb, where Jesus was, and looks around, and seized the linen wrappings there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lined with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. So it's a fascinating story with all kinds of suggestions. That here, Mary is unsure of what's happened to the body of Jesus. She doesn't, though, expect resurrection. I think sometimes when we tell the story of Jesus, we just assume that everybody knew the way the story was going to play out. And, and in truth, in the gospel, he, he tells them again and again, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. He says this to them repeatedly. But the fact is, according to all of the Gospels, once it actually happened, none of the disciples knew what had happened or what to make of it, right? They didn't, they didn't understand at all what resurrection meant. And so Mary comes, still dark, sees the, the stone is rolled away, runs to Peter and John, they come to the tomb, and the text says, and John saw and believed, but he didn't know what he believed because he didn't yet, they did not yet, know what it meant that Christ must rise from the dead. And then they went home. And this is, I think, so suggestive about what the Christian life actually is about. That we're seeing, but we don't quite know what we're seeing. We're believing, but we don't quite know what we believe. And here's a case where these two disciples, the beloved disciple and Peter, are at the tomb. They see the tomb is empty, but they don't automatically associate that with resurrection. They don't know what to think of it exactly. They believe, but they don't know what they believe, and then they go home. But Mary doesn't go home. Mary stays outside the tomb weeping. And we don't know why. And this is, I think, critical to what John wants to tell us, that there are some things that happen in the depths of our hearts that we just just don't understand. Other people don't understand, and we don't understand. That it's at the depths of our hearts that we really come in contact with the deep work of God, but in the depths of our hearts, it's dark, and we can't see what's happening there, much less other people see what's happening there. We don't know why Mary is the one who comes to the garden while it's still dark. We don't know why when the other disciples believe she does not. We don't know why when they go home she does not. We don't know why she stays, and we don't know why she weeps and i don't know that she knows but there she is outside the tomb weeping grieving something broken about something and i think it's it's critically important that if we're going to be honest about what the christian life is actually like it's more like this than people would want you to think it is it's more like coming while it's still dark not sure why you're coming seeing something, not quite sure what you see, telling other people about it, their response being also somewhat mild confusion, with some belief mixed in, and then that separation. They go home and you're left alone and you still don't know what you're experiencing. And so here she is, still dark, maybe the sun is just starting to break out, and she's weeping. And while she's weeping, John gives us this detail, and while she wept, She bent over to look into the tomb. Now, this is only a masterful storyteller would know to tell us this because she knows the tomb is empty. She came. She saw the stone was removed. She was there when Peter and John went into the tomb. She knows that they went home because it was empty. They seem to have, the best we can tell, just decided it'll sort itself out. His body's not here. We'll deal with it some other time. For whatever reason, they made peace with it and went home. She couldn't make peace with it. And she stayed and she's weeping. And then she looks into the tomb, even though she already knows what she's going to see. She looks and this time she sees angels. And I think that part of what John wants us to think about is that this, this is what the life of faith really is like. It's looking at what you've already looked at and then suddenly seeing something you've never seen before. And I think it's it's this that shows the mysterious work of God in our lives, that we, we we keep looking, we've already seen, and we keep looking, and then one day, suddenly, out of nowhere, we see something we've never seen before. And the angels say to her, Why are you weeping? Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord. Now notice when she tells Peter and John, she just says they have taken away the Lord. But now she's, she's showing us something of, of her own deep attachment to Jesus. They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Now notice this. She, she says this. They've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've put Him. And then... She senses a presence behind her, apparently, because she turns away from the open mouth of the tomb. She turns and sees Jesus, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And again, this is John showing us what the Christian life is actually like, that we are seeing what we've never seen before, not quite sure what it means and suddenly we see Jesus, but don't know that we see Jesus. This is, this is the image that Matthew's gospel gives us of the last judgment, that at the last judgment, when we're all standing before the Lord and giving account for what our lives have been, what we're all going to say is, we never saw you naked, we never saw you hungry, we never saw you in prison, and Jesus is going to say, what you did for the least of these, you did for me. So that Matthew's image of the last Judgment is that all of us are going to have realized that we were encountering Jesus all the way through our lives and didn't know it. That all of us were encountering the living, risen Lord and not aware that we were encountering the living, risen Lord. So that because we didn't encounter him the way that we expected or what we anticipated, we didn't think we'd had that encounter at all. But in fact, Matthew says, everybody, those who believe and those who do not believe, those who are faithful and those who are not faithful, When everything is said and done, they're going to look back on their life and see that Jesus was everywhere in their life. So no matter what our experience seems to say, Jesus is present to us all the time. And that's what's happening to Mary here. She turns, she sees Jesus, but she doesn't know who she's seeing. She doesn't recognize him. And again, I want to emphasize how honest John is being about what the Christian life is like. The Christian life is a lot like stumbling around in the dark. And even if it's You know what it's like, right? You wake up in your house, all the lights are off, but because it's your house, you kind of know your way around, right? Sometimes it's like that kind of darkness, and sometimes it's you wake up in somebody else's house, and you don't know your way around. But in in a very real way, the, the whole of the Christian life feels like that. It feels like stumbling around in a dark you're familiar with or stumbling around in a dark you're not familiar with. And here she is looking at Jesus. She makes this assumption she makes this assumption that he is the gardener. Why are you weeping, he asks her. And she assumes that he's the gardener, which this is John's way of throwing us back to the very beginning of our story, the story of, Garden, of the Garden of Eden. Because, of course, what happens in the Garden of Eden is Eve eats the forbidden fruit, and then God appears among them, and they've hidden from God. They've stolen away hidden themselves in shame, and God asks where they are. And, and here we have that same moment again. Mary is lost. She's unsure of what's taking place. She's weeping, and she just assumes that Jesus is the gardener. And he both is and isn't. I mean, he is God walking in the cool of the garden with her, just as in the beginning. But he isn't the gardener. She thinks he is. And he's, this is how it changes. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. He just says her name. And she responds by turning. Now, This is an odd detail in the story, because remember, she's already turned. She's already turned from the, from the tomb to, the, to face the gardener. She's turned away from the empty tomb, from where the angels are, to seeing Jesus, not knowing it's Jesus. And now he says her name, and she turns again. And I think this is John giving us a clue as to, again, what the Christian life is like. It's this kind of constant turning. You turn, and you see, but you don't really know what you're seeing. But we, we're not through with the story yet. There will be an, another moment in the story where you turn, and then you see. You recognize But even that turning, and even that seeing, isn't the end. It isn't the goal. So the Christianity that I grew up in, we believed in what was called entire sanctification. Let me see a hand if you know what entire sanctification is. There are a few of you. So the idea here is, believe it or not, that it was possible for Christians to become so sanctified that they didn't sin anymore. I know for some of you that's just unthinkable. But... But it's, it's true, this is what some Christians taught and still teach, that you can get to a place in your Christian life where you just didn't sin anymore. We had a man in our church, his name was Brother Wright, the most aptly, man, aptly named man who's ever lived, Brother Wright. And Brother Wright would testify once a year to let us know that once again that year he not only had not sinned, but he had not even been tempted which is just next level, right? Like like you all thought you were doing well not sinning. Brother Wright isn't even tempted. And then every year he would make the same joke and he would say, "But I don't know how much longer I can be with all of you because I think you might tempt me." And sure enough, before he died, he left the church because we were too much for him. I don't know how it turned out from there for him. But, hey, yeah, I mean, I can't really blame him. It was a difficult church. So You've got you've got this brother right, right? Who's, who's who can not only who not only doesn't sin, he can't even be tempted. And there's this way in which, I think, even though I, I don't think anyone's in here in here is crazy enough to think that's true, or that you wouldn't sin. But I do think there are ways in which we do feel this pressure that by this point in our life we should be better at this than we are. Right? We've been Christian long enough that at this point I should be better at it than I am. I mean, I know that's how I feel, for instance, about being a parent. I've got three kids. I've been doing this for a while. I really ought to be better at it than I am, right? I don't know that you ever really get better at it though. I think you just get old enough to forget how bad you were at it, (laughs) right? And then grandparenting seems to be like this magical cure for what you were actually like as a parent, right? I don't know, we'll see. I'm I'm looking looking forward to that, to the forgetting and the magical cure. But I I think that there's there's a lot of pressure on us, I think. I feel the pressure of being better at being Christian than I am. And especially, I mean, given that I do this, I mean, I get up in front of people and talk about it. But trust me, that doesn't make you better at it. Right? Just because you can say things that make some sense about it, doesn't mean you're good at doing it. And I don't think any of us are actually very good at doing it. I think that's one of the reasons our world is in the, sh- is in the shape that it's in, right? Is that we're not very good at doing it. And here's Mary, again, you think after all this time, Everybody would be better at this than they are. But she's completely lost. And even after Jesus calls her name, and even after she recognizes who he is, you know what the next thing is that happens? She falls down and clings to him. And Jesus has to say to her, Mary, don't hold on to me. Don't hold on to me. Because here's here's the truth. We're all in love with the Jesus we have known. That's the only Jesus there is for us to know, the Jesus we have known. But he's always more than we've known. And part of the walk of living with God, part of the journey of life with God, is the journey of realizing we can't cling to who we know God to have been. Even if there have been these moments in our life that were incredibly precious, where God seemed to be particularly near, or God spoke to us in some clear way, or God acted in our life in some undeniably powerful way, we can't cling to those moments, because he won't do that again. You know, there's that old altar song, He'll Do It Again. Have you heard heard this song? If you like Southern gospel music, you will have been subjected to it. And Southern gospel is one of the enemy's great tools to destroy genuineness in our faith. But <laughs> the, that's a whole nother sermon. We won't, even, we won't even talk about that. But... There's this is song, this idea that he will do it again, but the truth is he doesn't. I mean, when you, when you look at Jesus, he doesn't do things again. Like he doesn't have a technique that he performs again and again and again when he heals people. He heals people, but he doesn't do it the same way. And there seems to be something about God because he's this infinite living God. He never does the same thing the same way twice. Even though he does and is always faithful, he does come through for us, he never comes through the same way And so we can't cling to what we've known about God. We can't cling to what seems to have been an ideal past, a honeymoon period with God. He won't allow that. And so Mary, as soon as she recognizes who he is, she falls at his feet, clings to him, and he says, no, you can't do that, Mary. Go back and tell the other disciples that you have seen me. And I must ascend to your father and my father, to my God and your God. And Mary goes back, and she says to them, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, we don't know if Thomas is there when she makes this first report. But John very quickly moves us to the next scene, which is the story of the disciples all gathered together on a day like this. One of the reasons we still do what we do on Sunday mornings is that from the very beginning, Christians have met on mornings like this, to remember, But this, this particular morning, John says they're gathered together not to remember Jesus, but because they're afraid. And again, it's John telling us to be ruthlessly honest about what the Christian life is like. That all my jokes aside about being anxious and all, all of our jokes aside about not being exactly at the top of our game all the time. The truth of the matter is, in a room like this, there are people this morning who came here afraid. Afraid of themselves, afraid of someone in their life, afraid of God. Afraid that God is not going to come through for them, and all of us, at some point or another, have been in that place. And so all these disciples are gathered together, they're afraid, and Jesus appears to them, but Thomas is not there. I saw a sermon just recently by an independent Baptist preacher about where the prodigal's mother was when the prodigal came home, and he said it was because women, she was at work, and went, this is one of the reasons women shouldn't be working. that was part of his sermon. I'm pretty sure that's not in the text. Um, you can double check when you get home if you want. Uh, we don't know why Thomas isn't there, but now I, I feel emboldened to just to guess as to why Thomas wasn't there that Sunday morning. Um, I grew up in rural Oklahoma, which means it was probably hunting season, so he was in a deer stand, and that's why he missed Jesus. And then you could do a whole sermon about you know what you will miss if you miss Sunday morning. But let's just I'll let you guess where Thomas is. He isn't there for whatever reason. He has the measles. I don't know, whatever it is, right? He's not there. And Jesus appears and shows them his hands and shows them his side, and they see the Lord. But of course, at this point in the story, we've seen a lot of people see the Lord, and we know what that does and doesn't mean. There's a way of reading this story that says, oh, Jesus appeared to them. He showed them his hands and his side. What an incredible moment, how empowering that must have been But the truth is we've seen again and again people see the Lord and have no idea what the heck it is they're seeing. Even in Matthew's Gospel, the very last moment, you know, the moment of the so-called Great Commission where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth and I send you out into the world and I'm with you always. Two, Two really hilarious moments are happening there. One is that Matthew tells us that they saw Him but many doubted. So here they are With Jesus in this climactic moment of his ministry, right before he gives the final word of blessing, and they're still doubting him after the resurrection. And then, of course, the most hilarious thing about Matthew's account is Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, and then immediately disappears. What kind of sick cosmic joke is that? (laughs) I'm with you always. And then he's gone, right? Like in that same moment, he just disappears. Luke tells us a very similar joke at the end of his gospel. And and what you get from all of these gospel stories is that you get these disciples who are seeing Jesus after his resurrection and they don't know what they're seeing. They don't understand what's taking place. And nothing really has changed in 2,000 years. We still don't really know what we're seeing. We still don't really understand what God is doing in our own lives or in the lives of the people we love or in the lives of the people we don't love. We don't really know what God is doing. But Thomas, as we all know, doubts. Right? This is the story all of us are familiar with. Thomas says, I wasn't there and I'm not going to believe unless I see and touch. I- I'm going to have to see it for myself or I'm not going to believe. And it's easy, of course, to, to cast aspersions. I mean, why does he have to doubt? Why doesn't he trust the word of the other believers? But let's be honest. I mean, he has good reason to question these people. He's been with them for a few years now. He knows what they're like. And he knows what he's like. I mean, one of the things that's striking about Thomas is that elsewhere in the Gospel, when Thomas shows up, he's, he's bold, he's ready to die for Jesus. When Jesus goes to heal Lazarus or to raise Lazarus from the dead. The disciples are sure that Jesus is going to be killed. And Thomas is the one who says, let us go with him and and be killed. But now Thomas is doubting, for whatever reason, if we can even call it doubting. He just wants to insist that he has to see this for himself. And Jesus appears. They're gathered together again. And this time Thomas does not have measles, whatever whatever was that kept him out the first time. He's here this time. He appears, Jesus appears, he shows them his hand, specifically to Thomas. Thomas, touch me if you want. Here's my wound. Here's the wound in my side. Here are the wounds in my hand. And Thomas doesn't touch. He just falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says this, and I'm almost done. Jesus says, Thomas, do you believe because you have seen? Now remember, How many times in this story we've seen people see and believe and not know what they're seeing or what they're believing. So Thomas, do you believe because you've seen? More blessed are those who do not see and still believe. What a strange thing for Jesus to say. More blessed are those who do not see and still believe. And why why does John want to end his gospel on this point? Why does he want to bring this to this conclusion? There's a kind of appendix in the next chapter that brings a couple of other stories into play. But, but properly speaking, this is the end of the gospel. The very next verse is, this is why these things have been written, and we get a kind of nice end, and then you get an appendix. But this is the last story he wants to tell us. This is, the, this is what he wants to end on, that Thomas, it's more blessed not to see and still believe. Not to see what? not to see Jesus, not to see the wounds, not to have had this experience that these disciples have had. Because here's what I think John wants to leave us with, that when we all think back and we, th- we think back to the ministry of Jesus, we think back to those three years that he's with his disciples, we think if only we could have that kind of relationship with Jesus, where we could see him and touch him and hear him where we could see him perform the miracles, see him turn water to wine, or see him turn fish and loaves into a feast for thousands, or see him walk on the water, or see him raise the dead, or hear him teach the Sermon on the Mount. If, if only we could have that kind of relationship with him. But what John wants us to know is it's not what you think it was. We were all there, we all saw him, we all touched him, we all heard him, and we had no idea what we were seeing. We had no idea what we were hearing. Because that's... That's just the way the relationship with God works, given who we are and given who God is. Even when God is experienceable, even when God breaks through into our lives in some undeniable way, we still find ways to deny it. Because that's just the way relationship with God works in this world. Some of that is because God is mystery. Some of that is because we're complex. Some of that is because the enemy is at work against us in all kinds of ways. But for whatever reason... It's just the relationship with God is a relationship lived in the dark. And like I said, the question is just, is it a dark you're familiar with or a dark you're not familiar with? But it's all stumbling. It's all feeling around. It's all trying to remember what to do next. And it was that way for the first disciples. It's that way for us. And in a thousand years, it'll be like that for our, for our children. It's, it's always like that with God. But here's the good news. It's more blessed, Jesus says, not to see and still believe. It's more blessed not to see and still believe. So some of you, I, I'm sure, feel like God is gone from your life. Like God is just not there. That's good news. Because here's, here's what's taking place. For Thomas, Jesus is just one more body in the room. right? Thomas is in the room. And there's Peter, and there's Mary Magdalene, and there's Jesus. Jesus is just one more body in the room. But that's not how it is for you and me today. We're here this morning, and Jesus is not one more body in the room. There's your body, there's my body, and we are in him, and he is in us. Jesus is not one more body in the room. He's the body that we are. We are the body of Christ. And he's present to us in a way that's far more intimate and far more mysterious than anything Thomas could have imagined. Now, here's the good news. The good news is your sense of inexpertise, your sense of failure, your sense of foolishness, we all have the same feeling. And the first disciples had it, and we have it, and those who come after us will have it. We don't know what we're doing. But the good news is, some of the reason it feels like we're in the dark is that there's so much light we can't see. You know the difference, right, between being blinded in the dark and being blinded by too much light. And the fact of the matter is whether it feels that way to you or me or not, that's what we're experiencing, is that Jesus is so close to us. We're his body. He's so intimately available to us, so present to us that we're overwhelmed by it. Again, what does Matthew tell us? At the end of everything, what are we all going to look back on our lives and see? Jesus was everywhere. We don't experience it that way living forward. But once we get to the end and look back and he shows us what was actually taking place all along, what we're going to see is that Jesus was around every corner. Jesus was in every face. Jesus was every conversation. Jesus was present to us all the time, everywhere. So here's my word to you this morning. I hope it's a word of comfort. And that is, you don't have to pretend that you've got it going on, that you know what you're doing. Disciples never really know what we're doing. In fact, I think this is the mark of real maturity. Being able to admit you don't have any idea what the heck you're doing. But that's a sign of deep faith. God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what you're doing. But as I'm stumbling around in the dark, I trust that you're the darkness I'm stumbling around in while I don't know where you are, I trust that you're in me and I'm in you. When I don't know what to pray, I trust that you're praying for me. When I don't know how to feel or how to act or how to talk or how not to talk, I know you're with me. I know that you know me. I mean, that, that's to me, that's the root of our trust is that this isn't about us figuring it out and doing it well. This is about the fact that God knows us. And Thomas your complaint, your doubt, doesn't offend God. When he shows up in your life, hear my wounds. So you need to hear, some of you at least, need to hear this this morning. It's okay that you don't know what you're doing. It's okay that you don't feel like things are what they should be. It's okay that you feel frustrated with yourself, that you're not better at this than you are. God knows that. It's always been that way. In some ways, it'll always be that way. God is with you. And God is with you in you. God is within you. And you are being God to other people. You are being Christ's presence to other people, even when you don't know it. Even when you don't recognize it, you are the way in which He's touching others' lives. And that's, I think, where we have to rest. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you that Your standards for us, you you have no work standards. You have no expectations for us to be experts at the life of faith. You know that that's not possible. We need to know that that's not possible. So God, my prayer for my brothers and sisters this morning is that they will relax. They will rest in knowing that they don't have to be good at being Christian. They don't have to have some kind of professionalism some kind of face that they put on to perform for other people. We are just who we are and our relationship with you is what it is. And we do the best that we can in the midst of all that. And you are with us and you are within us through it all. You are the room. You are the light and the darkness. And God, even if we feel like we're stumbling around, you hold us. You know us even when we don't know you. God, I pray that this will be comfort, that this will bring peace to the hearts of my brothers and sisters, that they will will rest knowing that their trust is not in their own performance at all, not in any way. Their trust is in you. And that just as you did with Mary and just as you did with Thomas, you will keep showing up and keep showing up and keep showing up until we see what we've never seen before.